This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Just realizing this is the first time I've given a Dharma talk in this room. It's kind of exciting. The immersion of a meditation retreat is uh, an extraordinary and somewhat mysterious event. In in my own experience is that over the years, having done several of them, the, the basics always apply. No, it's come back to presence. Don't struggle against your experience. Um, preserve your diligence and dedication, and don't get in your own way. And, and then as as you, as you do them, you just start to s- discover the kind of yogic journey that's engaged. Huh? First two or three days, depending upon a number of factors. There's one sutra that talks about the 37 factors of awakening. So if you've heard of the seven and thought, okay, I could handle that, multiply it by six or five. (laughs) There's many factors coming into play. Some of them we can attend to deliberately, some of them we give over to without quite knowing what it is we're going over to. Yeah, it's a very interesting process. You know, I'm s- probably everybody in this room by this point has experienced, whether they noticed or not, that they sat a, a period of meditation and it felt a little swampy or a little heavy or something. And then they walked out the door, walked on the stairs, and it felt lighter or a little easier to be present or a little brighter. The mind was a little brighter. This interesting way that we're engaging our being below consciousness below our cognitive process. Not below consciousness, below our cognitive process. And if you're like Gil and I, you know, and and foolish enough to spend time looking at all the different approaches, 
that have arisen. Uh, and you see, oh, in this school, this is emphasized. You know, in Rinzai Zen, this energetic application is emphasized. This is how you engage and stimulate awareness. No, not quite sure how to characterize Tibetan Buddhism. It's so vast, you know, where every other, s- it seems to include many of the other schools. Um, but it's interesting to me to listen to Gil and reflect on what makes the most sense to me. You know, and I, I see her, her, hear a resonance. There's something fruitful in setting a stage, you know, externally and internally. You know, as a stage that allows the natural attributes of our being to flourish and support awakening. And here's a poem that, to my mind, comes at this in an interesting way. A short poem. It's hard not to love the world, but possible. When I'm like this, even the swallows are not God. Even the yellow school bus. Even the children inside wanting to get out are not God. The poet's name is Jim Moore. Something in us that brings us here, something in us um, upholds Buddha, Dharma, Sangha even if we don't use those words. There's something in our being that has drawn us to this way. And invited us, it made sense to us to make this sort of dedicated, heroic commitment. Um, Something in us, you know, as the poet says, that loves the world, that wants our life and all life to blossom. Mm. Not to say that's how we're living all the time. Not to say that we're always imbued with the attributes of that or seeing the world with those kind eyes and kind heart. But still, something in us brought us here with that kind of virtuous uh, endeavor. 
And that kind of virtuous endeavor you know, as as the poet says, inversed, you know. With that endeavor, the yellow school bus has presence. It has its own being. It it, it has its um, completeness. You know? Whether you want to say that's God or anything else, doesn't really matter. Call it what you want. And the swallows. And the children in the bus not wanting to be in the bus. They're too alive to be held back, to be contained in some artificial restriction. And even that attribute of the human personality we can cherish. And how do we offer that kindliness, that spaciousness, that generosity to ourselves? And and in a way this is the invitation of the first paramita, that kind of generosity. that the whole of existence is about giving and receiving. The yellow school bus is precious and the, the person receiving it is receiving a gift and bestowing upon it a precious uh, gratitude. There's there's a little chant in Zen where we say, giver, receiver, and gift are intertwined. You know? they, they, they arise into this intimate relationship you know, through generosity, through gratitude, through giving and receiving. Something in us knows it, something in us feels it, something in us lives it. And then as the poet says, it's hard not to love the world, but possible. We are seemingly capable (laughs) of thinking and feeling and acting in contradiction to that. And so the second paramita is sila, uh, virtue, um, sometimes morality, but I would say closer to its heart. It's the way of being that maybe a poetic way to say would be draws the best out of us a way of being that sets the stage for that to blossom. Hmm? 
in part of what I think both Gil and I have been saying is this way of coming at retreat, coming to retreat, being in retreat, um, this respect for our innate being, the um, the simple skillfulness that um, just addressing our human dilemma, you know? Okay, we're, we're capable, we're completely capable of these wonderful things, and yet we draw in and we give out all sorts of other kind of negativities and resistance and confusions. So one half of Sila, we could say, is upholding this virtue. And then the other half of Sila is, how do you work skillfully with this? And it does seem like most of us, if not all of us, our minds get more attracted to the struggle, the shortcoming the the um the feeling of impoverishment you know we're giving and receiving seems either distant or dangerous or inaccessible or even just unappealing And in a way, the practice is very simple. Yes. Yes, what is happening is happening. Rather than, no, it's not what I wanted. No, I don't like it. No, I'd rather it was different. (laughs) No, what was that? I was too busy with something else. As I think we all discover at a certain point, one of the first rewards we get from practicing awareness is that um, we get closer to our no. And that's a very delicate proposition for us. You know, this is... um, That that no is not simply because we're lazy, mean-spirited, stupid people. You know? Somewhere in that no is the dilemma of our life. How is it that as I search for intimacy, I separate? How is it that I uphold the virtue of giving and receiving. Um, I experience it as dangerous or unappealing at times. Mm. How is it 
that as I deeply and sincerely wish to be grounded, upright, open, and awake, when I enter into that mandala, all hell breaks loose. And in part of the yogic journey of practice, is to enter that fire. You know, sitting here, rather comfortably, well fed. It's not too cold, too hot. Um, it doesn't seem such an intimidating or offensive proposition. But, but we know, we know from our practice that at times it, it seems like it brings us right to the edge, you know? Maybe it feels like it pushes us over the edge. You know? This is more than I can handle. Yeah. I'm not good enough. However, no takes shape. So in a way, the discipline of sila asks us to be uh, sincere about taking care of ourselves. It asks us to be sincere about believing in our own capacity for generosity. It asks us to be sincere about being willing to bring a benevolence to our own process. And it's certainly my experience as a student and, and also as a teacher, something extraordinarily paradoxical for us. You know, it's like when we taste that, when we feel that, we all sigh with relief and maybe even a tear. You know? Oh, this is such a source of benefaction. Such a generous invitation for well-being. And the paradox is, infusing our practice with it seems so mysteriously difficult. And yet I would say, not to skip over it, or trivialize it, take it for granted, but but more um, almost with a compassionate patience, you know, take yourself by the hand and remind yourself. Benevolence, generosity, 
patience, um, it helps to create um, a steadiness, you know. It's like when the mind and the heart become agitated, um, the, the factors like courage and trust, they, they like fly out the window <laughs> in that agitation, you know, they're replaced by um, mean-spirited, judgmental, critical mind and heart. Mm. So one aspect, one very significant aspect of sila is In, in this positive regard, in, in this upholding the virtuous engagement of practice. Virtuous in that it, it sets a conducive environment, it, it sets a, um, the stage in a positive way. In a way where even the yellow school bus, you know, where even standing in line to go to lunch, you know, has has its own extraordinary appeal. You know. And we listen to the bell being hit, and we bow, and. and uh, And, and something about the interconnectedness of life is obvious. We feel it. it it's right there. It, it doesn't need any explanation or definition. We're part of it. We're the recipient of it. And, and and sila extends like this, you know, that we create the environment and we participate in the environment. You know, the, the, the conduct of how we behave when we're on retreat. You know? Close the door quietly, because if you slam it, it might be disturbing to someone else. But as you close the door quietly, you experience your own thoughtfulness and carefulness and generosity. You know? So you receive a gift. In the absence of a loud, frightening noise for someone else, they receive a gift. And, and the, the environment becomes safer for us all. And, and those more vulnerable and tender parts of us start to um, consider, often not in our conscious mind, start to consider, hmm, this may be a place 
where it's okay to be. This may be a place where, where the usual preoccupations can be allowed to start peeling off. Where the visceral holdings in the body and in the heart and in the mind can start to soften and loosen. So sila reaches out into the environment and that reaches back into this extraordinary way of being that's increased, that's heightened, that's sensitized when we enter retreat, you know. There, there's a way in which, you know, this poem in its inverse, you know, this way of loving the world where the world shines in its own being. Um, a lot of the time the journey to that place is through territory where the world doesn't shine. It's through territory where there isn't a shining, simple, obvious expression. There's something more complex and difficult, uh, clouded and obscured by the contracted and painful workings of our being. And that's the territory we journey through. And to do that journey, the supportive environment, the trusting environment, support us, help us, bring us into it. Yeah. There's a way in which we will only fall apart when it feels safe to do so. I remember once I was in an environment where a lot of trauma had happened, and um, actually it was where I grew up. But th then there was a time when all the civil unrest that, and sectarian violence that caused all that trauma, uh, very fortunately and blessedly, really diminished. And in that diminishment, then the post-trauma disorder arose up. It was like when, when there was active violence and you actually needed to be careful to stay alive and keep your loved ones alive, it, it was too dangerous to fall apart. And the danger goes down and then something else. or a Zen teacher that I know, um, Gil and I both know him well, he worked as a therapist with homeless people. And he did it for about 11 years. And if you've asked him, well, how does it affect you seeing all the, the raw, ugly side of what can happen? And he said, oh, I'm handling it pretty well. And then he retired. And then, 
after about six months, he noticed all these difficult symptoms. Now it was safe to unwind all that had been pent up. So in a way, we're creating an environment so you can fall apart. Or to put it another way, we settle into our unsettledness. You know? The things that we've been holding at bay, the, th- the things that it was too dangerous to let ourselves feel, even the yearnings that we stayed busy so they couldn't tug on us. Well, guess what? Now you've got all the time for that to happen. And, and this is why the basics are so valuable. Yeah. I remember working with several teachers, you know, and going to them and wanting some grand solution to the turmoil, the pain I was in. Keep going. Stay with the basics. Pay attention to it. Notice it. Feel it. Keep going. So this aspect of sila, it supports with benevolence and it supports with this aspect of discipline. Stay with the practice. And maybe we could say, invite in those moments. Because if you pay attention, you'll notice, even if something murky, difficult, painful is happening, still, you walk out down the stairs, maybe outside, and something comes forth the vitality of being has been quickened even in the murky contraction. So even as we turn towards what inevitably arises out of karmic life, we still uphold the moments where the virtue of the world shines. They may be small. Mm -hmm. They may be just the way you notice someone doing walking meditation. A gentle, steady presence. And it reminds you, you have this great gift of Sangha. You're with like-minded people. They're not looking at you funny. (laughs) 
they don't think you're weird for doing this. <laughs> They're doing it too. <laughs> so, so this is this rod. This is the aspect of sila. And then the other aspect of sila is the yogic internal alignment. This is uh, where as we set the stage that something in us can come forth and say, let it be. If this difficult feeling comes, let it be. If this annoying pattern of mind that that's always seems to be poking at something in a negative way, let it be. Yeah. Uh, this sense of contraction, emotionally, somatically, let it be. The nature of our mind and other aspects of our response is to fix it, control it, point out what's wrong with it. You know. and, and normally that kind of energy is being displaced out. Some of it is always we save for ourselves, but a lot of it we displace out. But as you get on retreat, and you're not talking, it's a whole lot more difficult to blame others. Yeah. <laughs> you, get a, you get a bigger uh, experience of yourself. And with this let it be, rather than create a complexity of um, that can happen for us, you know, we think you, you start to exhibit a certain uh, expression of being and then you want to push it down, you know? Maybe you just simply want to sit there calmly with, with some concentration. So you push down the unruliness. But pushing down unruliness, it's a little bit like pushing a ball underwater. You know, it's just going to find some other way to come up. Or you push it down, and when you stop pushing down, it pops up anyway. You know? uh, um, and then internally, like that creates its own um, more complicated way of being. You know? it, it, it stirs us up. It, it makes yes a more elusive word. No seems to ha be a more appropriate response to the occasion. Um, so, so the internal aspect of sila is how do we start to create 
how do we start to manifest this alignment? Or what we might say, the benevolent vow of practice starts to connect to, flow through the workings of a karmic life. And in the language of Zen, this is the great con of our existence. This is the great inquiry. You know, it's in some ways, settled, open, grateful presence is very simple. It's like, here it is, fine. The karmic world is so... Um, complex. It, it has so many um, concerns, so many difficult emotions, so many places where we're hesitant, resistant, find it difficult to connect to. And yet it's these very characteristics where we discover how to practice. How do you discover how to let go? You discover it by noticing where you're holding tight. How do you discover about generosity? You discover where fearful uh, holding back seems to be the most appropriate response. And how do you study these things? You study them by getting close and experiencing what's happening. It's not making up ideas, it's not conjuring up potential possible causalities, it's getting close to experience directly what's going on. And, and in our practice we have this notion Chitta bhavana, cultivation of consciousness. The, 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 the body, the breath, the mental disposition, they are agents in this meeting and experiencing what's happening. We we engage in experience to learn how to engage in experience. We engage with the body, we engage with the breath, we engage with the mind. And as we engage them, we're in a learning process. And they become both a teaching and an agent in connecting to the complex attributes of a human existence. So wonderfully called me. Huh? I remember reading somewhere, Suzuki Roshi, you know, one of his talks, he said, we're all so incredibly selfish. I think he said 90 or 95 of percent of our thinking is about me. 
So how wonderfully studying me is how the Dharma arises. <laughs> we're, we're already there, so... <laughs> the first part's done. <laughs> But the yoga of body, you know, the basic yoga of body, um, stability, uprightness, openness, that, that can receive the breath, that, that the, the, the flow of life through the body, um, becomes a constant teaching about the flow of life. That the mind and the whole environment is always in flux. Becomes a teaching about the vitality of life. It, it becomes a teaching on how contact, awareness with what's happening isn't a static thing. It's closer to surfing, you know, it's, it's constantly flowing. You know? Not to say that shamatha, single-pointedness, doesn't have its place, but it, it's an agent in the process in the inquiry of Vipassana. Uh -huh. And this existence is always in flux. And, and, and so the investigation has this versatility, this adaptability. Uh -huh. So the, the basics become directed attention, receptive attention, intertwined. Huh? We, we discover what kind of relationship they have. We, we discover how that relationship comes into being in the service of awareness of whatever happens. And this attribute of sila, we are the student to be taught by everything that arises. And, and sometimes this, this is a wonderful um, support and technique. You know, you, usually something arises, we've experienced it before, we're inclined to reintroduce the usual emotional, psychological thought pattern. Oh yeah, that again. Oh yeah, that always bothers me, and I always whatever, and then I always whatever, and then terrible, terrible things happen. <laughs> and is this practice ever going to work? I mean... <laughs> but just to come at it sideways. Hmm. And what's happening? 
And, and what's the experience that gives rise to that thought? And what are the details of the conclusion that I'm creating? And how is that affecting the body? Um, and, and we learn, you know. We, when we bring that kind of investigation, we can learn from a deeply painful emotion. We, we, we can learn from some insistent narrative that's going on in our head. What am I saying? Who am I saying it to? <laughs> What's the underlying feeling that makes it so energized and determined? And of course, when we put it into words, it sounds like, oh, and it's all about thinking. Ask yourselves those questions in those articulated phrases, but as intimately as possible. No? Can we draw it in closer than words? Can we, it's already closer than words. Can we allow it to be that way? In the place where we discover the yoga of closer than words is the body and the breath. Mm -hmm. And one of the fierce teachers of intimacy and body and breath is the discomfort that arises in our body. Yeah. It's unpleasant, in case you haven't noticed. Can we, can we not contract? Or maybe more modestly, can contracting not be the only thing we're doing? <laughs> can, can we touch the sensation? You know, that guided meditation Gil was doing about the sensations in the hands. Well, it's not so much that you should be able to tick off all six characteristics he mentioned as can you invite an intimacy of involvement that can notice these whatever characteristics you notice. Can you, can you invite an intimate involvement that goes beyond words? Sometimes it's helpful, you know, to label tingling, throbbing. Sometimes at a certain point that helps to draw us into the territory, it helps to draw us into connection. But can it also draw us into contact, in, in to experience the contact as contact. Mm -hmm. And as we experience contact as contact, um, 
something extraordinary can happen there. Hmm? We, we can see that part of the contraction and the pain and the discomfort in an amazing way is sort of self-generated. It's, it's part of it is response to unpleasant. Yeah. And, and in a visceral way, we're starting to get at, we're starting to experience and learn about some of the visceral aspects of dukkha. And as we start to get at that, and we breathe into it, and, and we allow it, we're starting to experience some of the attributes of liberation. And how... Um, How interesting that this can happen in the same territory as the discomfort, the physical discomfort and pain that happens in our bodies. But by no means to think that this is the only place. You know? We do ourselves an enormous disservice if we think that, if we act like that we will wear ourselves out. Yeah. The moment when the bell rings and you get to uncross your legs. Ah, that's a wonderful moment to pay close attention to. Because there is also the release. There there's also floating, emerging, immersion into ease. Yeah. You, you can feel the way um, pain circulates the body, and you can feel its tendency towards tension, and then you release it, and you, you can feel this kind of influx of sukha, pleasant, physical sensation. You can feel how it softens the breath and softens the mind. You can feel how it nourishes and reassures on a visceral level. Hmm. So this too, this is also Chitta Bhavana. And as we explore in this way, we're exploring this yogic alignment. Mm -hmm. And as we explore this yogic alignment, we explore how it can offer an uprightness in the complexity of a human life. We explore how it can add uh, sense of trust in the process. Yeah. I mean, really, what this whole process is asking of is like, do the practice, 
bring whatever arises into connection and awareness and it will unfold. How will it unfold? Don't know. That's the marvelous complexity of being alive. And if we were to fix on a goal, it would distract us from what's happening. So in some ways we can say sila is to go beyond, go beyond the fixed definitions of the conditioned. It takes us beyond it. So it covers a range. It covers a range from, you know, Pay attention to how much sleep you get, getting enough water to drink, enough food to eat, just taking care of body and mind to this extraordinary subtle explorations of what's possible within our human body. And as we attend to this human life with both of these, you know, and give them both um, the attention they deserve, you know, this is a physically stressful thing to do, what you're doing. It's physically demanding. Take care of your body. Take care of its basic needs. It's just a practical thing. Um, And attend to these intimate yogic workings of your being too. They're an extraordinary ally in the process of awakening. They will support they will help the stabilization, the energy, the attentiveness that are attributes. Um, what's what's the plan? What time are we supposed to end? No. At five? Okay. Um, So, what prompted me to say all that? (laughs) 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 But I did. And, and I hope something in it was useful, you know. Um, and don't worry if there were parts of it you didn't like or didn't agree with, so what, you know. 
Maybe there were parts you did like and you did agree with. Stick with those. (laughs) (laughs) And also, maybe more interestingly, if there were parts of it that, that stimulated that kind of inquiry, you know, you, you know, part of the human condition is a natural curiosity. You know, we, we you know, usually we overdo it. We, you know, we, we, we become too solidly connected to our understandings and our judgments. It, and then that sort of trips us up. But that curiosity, that inquiry, that investigation, you know, What's going on? You know? All the time. You know. But gently, you know. When you sit down, uh, what are you expecting to happen? You know, can it just be wide open? Can there be some part of you just says, engage the basics and don't know what's supposed to happen. Can there be some part of you that just says, this is a step-by-step process. What arises is what is. And what is it? That kind of step-by-step, willing to learn, willing to open. Okay, for good measure I'll read you that little poem again. It's hard not to love the world, but possible. When I'm like this, Even the swallows are not God, even the yellow school bus, even the children inside wanting out are not God.